Good and good morning to all of you. Now that we have high-profile phone people, I don't know what we'll do about me. I, I have to apologize to Ken Nelson. I called him Ken Hamlin for some reason. My mind just shorted out. You might pray for me through the rest of the sermon that, it, uh, that those circuits uh, work right. At any rate, I want to get back into the series that we were doing before Pentecost on the Minor Prophets. And for a very brief review, as we go on through it, it gets harder to review because you have more books piled up behind. But in a few words, Hosea, Joel, and Amos gave an exposition and an indictment of sin in the church and, of course, in Israel as a whole on top of that. There is a great deal of warning of God's retribution, of what he would do to us, and of the oncoming day of the Lord, and what we must do to prepare for it, that we be ready. Then we get a break with the book of Obadiah, which introduces the first major enemy of the church, and then to the book of Jonah, which is a very dramatic warning to do everything just like God said. I witness Uzzah and others, along with Jonah, who did not do it just the way God said, even though... Humanly, it seemed that it would be better to do something different. So God gives us a very strong warning there that he wants things done a certain way. And we have to explore the scriptures then in every case to understand what is his way, what is his wisdom, what is his desire in any facet or part of life that comes along. Jonah is always there as a new testimony against those who refuse to do something God's way. Then we came to the book of Micah, which I did not really get into, but we did a review of, or a summary of the introduction to Micah. As you may recall, Micah means, who is like the Lord? And I think that fits very well with the preceding book, because Jonah wasn't much like the Lord there for a while. And he repented and decided to do exactly what God wanted him to do under those circumstances. We're going to see a great deal of instruction to the church now in the upcoming books about what to do, how to handle ourselves in this time. And the setting of Micah is when the Assyrian was about to come into the land and destroy Israel. It is very much uh, contemporary with Isaiah. They may even, even have overlapped a little bit. Of Micah apparently coming a little bit prior to Isaiah, and Isaiah quoted Micah several times because they were dealing with the same problem. We find ourselves at the very end now of this age knowing, as the church has known now for these last 50 or 60 years, that the Assyrian is coming into our land, and we're getting probably very close to that circumstance now. So these words should have more meaning for us than ever they have before, realizing the time is short, the time is near, and that we must be ready. I did go into Matthew 24, among other scriptures, to show that all is not going to be peaches and cream, that we are going to have extreme difficulties, even the love of many waxing cold, betrayal, offense among brethren, and that martyrdom will even come to some. Now, I had one person write me after that and, and say, 
please don't scare me anymore. I'm already scared half to death. <laughs> and uh, I understand the feeling. At times I get afraid for myself as well. And I got to thinking about that, though, and I really appreciate that that person is fearful. But they're scared. Because fear is one of the greatest motivators that we have. There are other strong motivators, and of course the carrot in front of the donkey is a very strong motivator too. So God gives us a great deal of scripture and, and insight into what is coming after the trouble ends to help keep us moving forward. But fear is one of those, let's say, primordial uh, emotions that come over us, and it is one of the greatest motivators. I remember as a child walking the quarter of a mile on the farm from my grandfather's house and mother's to our house. And at night, I would walk faster and faster and faster the closer I got home. And by the time I got to the fence, I almost jumped through the barbed wire, ran as fast as I could, leaped across the front porch, slammed the screen open and got in as fast as I could because I just knew something was back there after me. And they were gaining on me as I went. So fear helps me get home in a hurry. Now that's just a small example of what fear can do. And I know that we are sometimes uncomfortable with fear, as we should be. But it is that very discomfort that motivates us to do something about it, to prepare ourselves. Now I'll make this comment on top of that, and that is that for everyone, I think, in the Church of God today, the greater Church of God, not just Church of the Great God, but God's whole Church, for everyone that is fearful and realizes that they are in great spiritual jeopardy and should be waking up and repenting, there are probably about nine who are self-satisfied, smug, think they're okay spiritually, and as long as they're in the Church or in a particular part of the Church, that they will be fine. So it is not to those who are already terrified that I speak these words, but to the nine out of ten who feel smug about their current spiritual condition. That everyone is a Laodicean but me, if you will. That is a scary proposition in itself. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah 4 before we get right into the book of Micah. And follow this thought up a little bit. Back in Jeremiah 4. Verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be removed, or shall not remove. Verse 3. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let your heart hang out. Circumcise that which is wrong from your heart. Let your heart be seen and purify it. That's what circumcision was, purification. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Declare in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go to the walled cities. Set up the standard toward Zion 
Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. This is going to happen. It is a time to repent very greatly before God, to prepare ourselves, because the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. Verse 22, For my people is foolish, they have not known me, they are sottish children, they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. In this world we learn the wisdom of the street. We learn what is out there. But the wisdom of God does not come easily. And we have lost a great deal of that. Chapter 5, run you to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, or the church, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if you can find a man, if there be any, that he executes judgment, that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. Sounds almost like Sodom and Gomorrah. O Lord, are not your eyes upon the truth? This is verse 3. You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. Most, it seems, in the church today still do not realize that it is God who is scattering the church. And we harp on it and harp on it, but it seems many, 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 the majority of God's people today still do not recognize. His eyes are upon the truth. We don't even recognize what God is doing. We blame it on Satan, the ministry, or whatever, as John has been saying in his series. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. They have not turned back to God. The back is still to God. But we're to turn our faces to God. Slipping on down now to verse 10. Go you upon her walls and destroy, but not make a full end. Well, God is destroying the church, but he says not a full end. Take away her battlements, for, the, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against me, says the Lord. They have belied the Lord and said, It is not he. God is not doing this. And yet we have seen over the last several years, actually, many, many, many dozens of scriptures that show that God is doing this to us. I don't think that can be overemphasized, and we'll see it again in the book of Micah. They have said it is not he. Now, is that a powerful indictment against those who say it is not he or not? Neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword nor famine, and the prophet shall become wind and the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. They're going to say, the ministry is going to say, God didn't do this, Satan is doing it to us. But God says they're going to become just so much wind because they will not admit that God himself is behind this. You reap what you sow, and that what we are reaping is scattering and chastening and scourging, as he says in Hebrews 12, scourging and chastening. 
if that's what we're receiving, and it appears that we are by what is happening to us, then God says it is of Him that we are reaping what we have sown. Verse 25, Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withheld good things from you. If we were sowing good spiritually, would not we be reaping benefit and blessing from God today? He is a master of cause and effect. And therefore, the effect we are receiving has to be for the cause of having sowed wrongly. Verse 29, Shall I not visit for these things, says the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation or a people as this? My margin says in verse 30, Astonishment and filthiness is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. What will you do in the end thereof? People don't want to hear of hard things to come. They do not want to hear the things that are fearful. They do not want to hear repentance, because we, as people, will only repent so far. We will repent until we are fairly comfortable with what we are. We will not repent to the degree that God wants us to repent, to turn to him with our whole heart. If we can feel we have repented enough to be a little bit better spiritually than those that we see around us, or perhaps even just the world around us, then we think we're okay. But Christ wasn't just a little bit better than the world. He wasn't just a little bit better than the disciples. He was with God with his whole heart. That is what God is after with us. Otherwise, the sword is coming upon us. Chapter 6, verse 1. O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, to blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and so on. For evil appears out of the north, and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. The evil shepherds, I think it should read, with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her round about. They shall feed her, everyone in his place, prepare war against her. So God is allowing destruction to be brought upon his church. And that is the setting of the book of Micah, that the church is being knocked down, and that the Assyrian is about to come into our land. So as we consider this book, we need to consider that it is written first to the church, and secondly to the physical nation of Israel. That it has to apply to us first. So let's go then to the book of Micah. I won't turn to Isaiah because the beginning chapters of Isaiah read very much the same as Micah, and they read very much the same as what we just saw in the book of Jeremiah. So you can go back on your own and read through Isaiah in terms of this book and get an even fuller picture of what God has to say to us in Micah uh, in the book of Isaiah. So keep the setting of Isaiah in mind when you read it the same as the setting of the book of Micah. So, the word of the Lord is that came to Micah, the Morissite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hezekiah is mentioned quite prominently by Isaiah. 
which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Remember, Samaria was the capital of the northern ten tribes and Jerusalem the capital of the southern tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. And if you will recall the sermon I gave some time back, right after the feast, about why was Israel divided, uh, bring back to mind the concept that Samaria may very well depict the worldwide church of God uh, in a spiritual sense, and that Jerusalem and Judah may very well depict those who came out of worldwide, those who split off from worldwide because he addresses one then the other here and it seems to fit here as well as other places which we examine in the sermon itself. Micah addresses Samaria and Jerusalem whereas Isaiah primarily and in the, the opening salutation only addresses Judah though he does address Israel uh, once in a while in the book. So this is concerning the whole church Hear all you people. Hearken, O earth, he expands it, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, the Lord was not in the temple in Micah's day in the sense that he spoke from the temple, but he spoke through Micah through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through the various ones. So today, he speaks through his church. He uses human beings as mouthpieces, as mouth, not mouthpieces, <laughs> mouthpieces to discuss these things with his church, using the scriptures themselves, because that's what we have as authority from God, and we're to speak what he says in the book. So God is warning the world and the church from his church. The warning goes first to the church. Secondly, it will go to the world. Very likely, the church supporting the two witnesses doing that job. So listen to what God has to say from his church. For, behold, the Lord comes forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountain shall be molten under him, the valley shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Now, is this talking about volcanoes, earthquakes, uh, and so on? Or is it speaking of God destroying governments, powers, ministries, churches, and so on? I think it probably applies to both, first spiritually to the church, secondarily physically to the world. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. So he lays out why trouble is coming. It is interesting to note the timing here as well. And that is just before the day of the Lord. Just before destruction is wreaked on Israel physically. So this is not a millennial setting. We need to understand that, because there are some scriptures later on that seem to refer to the millennium, and in a larger sense, perhaps they spill over into the millennium. But the very time setting that is laid out here is just before the Lord comes out of his place to wreak vengeance, a time that we are in, I believe, right now. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? 
And what are the high places of Judah, or the idols of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So he puts it to the leaders first. For those of you who feel that it is just the ministry's fault that we find ourselves the way we are, why are you, by the way, suffering as a result of what the ministers have done? Each man will reap the reward for his own sin. Now that does not mean that false shepherds do not bite, chew, and devour the sheep. Don't get me wrong. I fully understand that. But he does hold the leadership responsible first. That's why James says, Be not many teachers or masters, because they receive a greater condemnation, judged much more harshly than someone who is not in a position of teaching. So he addresses that first. Therefore, verse 6, I will make Samaria as an heap of the field. So let's call this Worldwide Church of God, just for giggles here. And as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. In other words, I'll knock the whole thing flat right down to the foundation. Read Matthew 24, 2 in connection with that. Not one stone left upon another in the temple of God. So he picks up really where he left off in Hosea, Joel, and Amos here, doesn't he? It does get a little more encouraging as we go on. So uh, we will proceed here. And all the idols, the graven images thereof, shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hirelings thereof shall be burned with fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate, for she gathered it of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return to the hire of an harlot. They've gone right back into Babylon and to Egypt. They have begun to consort with the harlot of this world, and actually have become a part of the beast at this point by joining the World Council of Churches. Those who have split off have not gone to that extent. But we'll see some things about them as well, or us as well. Therefore I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked, I will make a wailing like the dragons and mourning as the owls. So this is Micah saying what his emotion about this is, how it hurts, and how he will mourn and wail and cry for what has happened to the church of God. And I think that we have done very much the same thing, had the same emotions about what has happened to our brothers and sisters as they've gone right back into this world. For her wound is incurable, it says here in uh, the King James, but my margin says she is grievously sick of her wounds, dying of her wounds. But notice, for it is come unto Judah. He is come unto the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Now, three or four years ago, you and I probably would have said, well, those who came out of the Worldwide Church of God are basically okay, and those who stayed in are in deep trouble. And yet, on the other hand, this far downstream, we're beginning to see those organizations unravel and come apart. We're beginning to see them accept a little bit more of this world, a little falling away from the truth. Here and there, they're tolerating Trinity, they're tolerating this, they're tolerating that. 
the Sabbath is being observed, but not very carefully. There are a lot of things that are just beginning to slide away, and in that is treachery against God. He has come to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. And then he starts talking about several different towns here. And these towns, essentially, in the next few verses, are in South Judah, west of the Judean hills, those that still exist. And on the approach to Jerusalem by the Assyrians. These villages were besieged and destroyed in the approach to Jerusalem. But I wonder if we could not equate these small villages to local congregations. Spread out from their headquarters uh, nurturer here and there. And they are besieged. They are destroyed by the destroyer, spiritually speaking, at this point. So he says, verse 10, Declare ye not it not at Gath, weep ye not at all, in the house of Ephra, roll yourself in the dust, Gath was a Philistine city there. So it's not just the headquarters and the ministry, but perhaps the local congregations that suffer part of the indictment here as well. That God will allow them to be besieged and destroyed, just like the headquarters. So first he addresses the leaders at the beginning of the chapter, but then he gets it down and says the local congregations, on a spiritual level, the little cities are going to go through captivity and destruction as well. Verse 11, Pass you away, you inhabitant of Sapir, having your shame naked. The inhabitant of Zanan came up forth in the morning of Bethesel. He shall receive of you his standing. Remember John's sermon of Pentecost, where he was talking about the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 and how they are all extant today from internal evidence. There is one there, Thyatira, I believe it was, who was going into tribulation, and it says, Then shall all the churches see what has happened to you. So those cities of that were churches in the early New Testament church came through as eras, I believe, and also are extant as attitudes, perhaps even um, extant as organizations. I don't know. I don't try to identify them necessarily because that can be a lesson in futility. I just take all the evil out of each one of them and say that fits Daryl Henson. And that way, you see, I can repent of all of it, and hopefully I can get to be where I should be. So I don't want to say, well, those people over there must be such and such, and these over here must be such and such, because then I can feel better because those are the bad guys and I'm okay. And that is a very, very dangerous position for us to put ourselves in. So let's consider these different cities back in the book of Micah in the same sense that we considered those in John's sermon in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. Because quite a few churches exist today. And maybe that's the reason God took the time and the space and his precious word to go ahead and go through a list of the cities there in southwest Judah and realize that they are going to have difficulty. Notice verse 12. For the inhabitant of Meroth waited carefully or expected or was grieved for good. 
They wanted good to come. And I think that is certainly true of the different congregations of God around the world. We would love to have the benefits and the blessings of God. And we look and expect that. But evil came down from the Lord under the gate of Jerusalem. So even though we want good, God says, I sent evil. Therefore, he must not have been happy with the way we were acting, even though we wished for good. Wishful thinking doesn't do us a whole lot of good, does it? We have to actually begin to do something about this. O you inhabitant of Lachish, and that also is in Judah, bind the chariot to the swift beast. In other words, saddle up and get away from this kind of thing. Be prepared to flee, in other words, from the Assyrian to come, from the attitudes and sins that we find in the congregations and in ourselves, and he equates it to that. Bind the chariot to the swift beast, beast, she is the beginning of the sin, to the daughter of Zion. So he attributes Lachish as the first city. I don't know where it was in relationship to Jerusalem. I should have looked that up. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. So it's not just that those men in headquarters were the problem. But even the beginning cities, the outer cities, the small cities, the congregations also contain the transgressions of Israel. Therefore shall you give presents, or bring presents for, Moresheth Gath, the houses of Agzib, shall be allied to the kings of Israel. Yet will I bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marisha. He shall come to Adullam, the glory of Israel. So in spite of all this, he says, yet, will I bring an heir to you? He will bring help. But in the meantime, things are pretty bad. He shall come to Adullam, the glory of Israel. That's where David hid. That's where he fled to. And perhaps God will bring us leadership that will take us even to a place of safety. But meantime, verse 16, Make you bald. In other words, snatch out your hair. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? Snatch out your hair and pull you for your delicate children. Enlarge your baldness as the eagle. They call it the bald eagle here in America because its head is white and the rest is brown. And he looks bald-headed in that sense because the brown feathers aren't there. For they are gone into captivity from you. So these are pretty dire times. And the Assyrian is going to come even to the gates of Adullam, it appears. Remember Revelation 12, where he says Satan will chase the church, and God will have to cut it off and protect the church. So they're going to come even up to the gates of a place of safety when we have to flee from the Assyrian who is about to come. <laughs> but going to a place of safety is a contingent situation. He says, pray there in Matthew 24, that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. And even that scripture itself shows that there's a certain amount of question with us. And that should give us a certain fear to motivate us to draw close to God. The place of safety is not the goal, obviously. The goal is the kingdom of God and righteousness and holiness to be like him. But, 
whether God accounts us worthy is going to have, to some degree, an, a, a bearing on how we are living. <laughs> if we are holy and righteous, then we will have a much better chance of being accounted worthy. Now, woe to them that devise iniquity, chapter 2, and work evil upon their beds. They thought it out ahead of time. And that is what happened in Worldwide. I had signals way before they began to make changes from a local pastor in the area that I was in. who had just transferred into the area. He had been very close with the Picot family. And one of the first things he said upon coming to that assignment is there are going to be some great changes in the Church of God and some of you will be left behind. And... The red flag went up in my mind immediately. Didn't say what the, those changes were going to be at all, but they had already been discussed. They had already been planned. Then it was a matter of instituting them over a period of time against all protest. We're not going to change this. And the minute they'd say, we're not going to change this, you'd know that would be the next one to come. How can you tell if they're lying? Their lips are moving. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They have no need for a greater justification than that. They simply were in a place of power and could do it and therefore did do it. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Now that's what was done in the church of God. Not coveting particularly, I guess, fields of wheat or corn or, or grain, but wealth. Those things represent wealth. So they were after wealth. And take them with power, or by power. simply being in a position of power so that they could take what they wished and have done so. Although I suspect that once the money all comes in from the sale of Big Sandy and from the sale of the campus in Pasadena, that there will be checks sent to each and every one of us as refunds uh, for all of the tithes and offerings and, and building funds that we sent in. I, I'm, I'm sure that we should not misjudge them and that we should expect that check in the mail. The old, your check is in the mail story. If you want to believe that and live by it, why fine. Uh, call me when you get your check and I'll expect mine. So they are taking this away from us. Even a man and his heritage. What is our heritage? He says, even that they are taking. Our heritage is to be co-heirs with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, as rulers of the world. And that heritage is being taken away from the church. Taking them right back into Egypt, to Babylon, and to Sodom and Gomorrah, spiritually speaking. And our inheritance is in great danger if we don't get away from that type of influence. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, the whole family, the whole church of God, do I devise an evil from which you shall not remove your necks, 
neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. So if we move forward in vanity and spiritual ego and say that I'm okay, I'm rich and increased with good spiritually, and are haughty rather than humble and meek before God, we are in trouble. Verse 4, In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. And I think that the book of Lamentation is a good place to start when you start reading about doleful lamenta lamentation against the church. Now again, this will apply physically to the spiritual, I mean to the physical nations of Israel as well, for they too will be utterly spoiled by the Assyrian, but spiritually the Assyrian is already here. We've already been dealing with it, and we have been dying spiritually a thousand on the left and ten thousand on our right. He has changed the portion of my people. How has he re removed it from me? Turning away, he has divided our fields. My margin says, instead of restoring, he has divided. So God has divided and scattered rather than restoring that which has been lost. So the harvest, the people that God called, are being winnowed out. They are being scattered here and there. And our fields are divided today. Verse 5, Therefore you shall have none that shall cast the cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. I think you can paraphrase that to say there's just not nothing, nothing much left to divide up. They've pretty well taken it away. Verse 6, Prophesy you not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. We have many, many warnings in the Bible saying that we should be prophesying what is occurring and how it has happened and what we need to do about it. But they don't want to hear it. So many want to hear, I'm okay. If I'm in this organization, I'm all right. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's just because you are in Church of the Great God, if you are, you don't have it made by any means. Why do we preach so strongly to you? I'll tell you why I do. Number one, God says to. Number two, I know me. And knowing me... I need a strong message that it's time for me to wake up. That I am willing to look into my heart and mind to a certain degree and see certain things that are wrong. But it is so very difficult for me to look as deeply in there as God wants me to. Because we all have our sacred cows in our minds that it is hard for us to recognize and give up whatever they might be, attitudes, approaches, personality quirks. There are all kinds of things wrong with us. And if we're to turn with our whole hearts and to be like Jesus Christ and to think every thought, to bring every thought into captivity, I think we have a long way to go. Somebody, some people get tired of hearing that we need to repent. But brethren, I still need to repent. I still do not have every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. 
not by a long shot. And you don't either. You may have repented enough to be comfortable with yourself, but is God comfortable with you? If Jesus Christ were to follow you around, do you do things the way he would do them? Do you think the same thoughts he would think? There's the acid test. So they say, don't prophesy to us. Don't preach to us the strong things. Verse 7, O you that are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of God straightened? Are these his doings? Here's the question. Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walks uprightly? In other words, why is this happening to us if we are upright? And the answer is, we're not upright. He says he will give a plumb line to the two witnesses to measure us, to check our uprightness. And when we get to it, it will become very obvious in the book of Haggai that only a remnant of the church is found upright. Not the majority. But the majority today thinks it's basically upright and okay and does not have the fear of God. But he raises the question himself that is the question of the day. Is God doing these things? So if we are reaping trouble, scattering, division, and difficulty, it is the doing of God, and it means that our works have not been pleasing before him. I hate to be the messenger of gloom and doom, but it's the only way we're going to come out from under this. That is, if we take it with fear, if we take it with seriousness, and we are motivated, because we are coming before God. Those who are complacent, would you like for Christ to come today? Now, right now, would you like him? Here we are in a beautiful living room. Would you like Jesus Christ to appear here and read your thoughts to the rest of us? I mean, let's say the last week's thoughts, maybe. Let's don't get too wild with this. Or maybe just the last few hours. Or minutes. Or when Daryl Henson said, we're going to preach strong again. <laughs> and some of you didn't like that. Would you like Jesus Christ to come here and read those thoughts in public? Now, he's already doing it, isn't he? He's got your hair numbered. But if he was here in body, in presence, it seems like that affects us more. Just the very thought of it. But he's judging our hearts daily now because judgment is now upon the house of God. Okay, verse 8. Well, this sort of proves my point, I think. Even of late, or my margin says, even yesterday my people has risen up as an enemy. He doesn't have to go years back to what we were in worldwide. He can just look at yesterday, a few hours ago and say, my people is still an enemy in their minds, their hearts, their emotions, their thoughts toward me, because they are not all pure. 
You pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse for more. We might wish we were okay. We don't want to be in warfare. We don't want to fight among ourselves. Nor do we want, maybe, to really fight a warfare against our human nature. So even those that maybe have the righteousness of God and the holy garments, we tend to jerk those garments away from them. In other words, nobody's safe. If there are ministers who want to misuse, abuse, and scatter the flocks by their actions, take our money, take our inheritance, they don't care. They'll jerk our clothes right off us. Are we going to let them? Verse 9. The women of my people have you cast out from their pleasant houses. A lot of us felt pleasant and at peace, perhaps, in whatever group we found ourselves in after we came out of Worldwide. And yet even those are being torn and breaches in their walls and breaking down right and left in front of our very eyes. So again, we're being cast out from our pleasant houses. Worldwide was a pleasant house for a lot of years, but it deteriorated, and the roof caved in, and we fled from the falling roof and the falling walls. And we got comfortable again, but not just the house, but our pleasant houses now, for they are beginning to come apart. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. So the little groups will have their glory destroyed as well. Verse 10, Arise you and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. And that's what we've been seeing. People falling away, quitting, giving up, going back into the world, or just simply sitting, doing nothing, and hoping it'll all go away, or whatever they are doing as opposed to truly seeking God with their whole hearts. So it was time to leave worldwide because it was polluted. And in some cases, it may even come time to leave some of the groups we're in because they also are polluted. And it's not our rest, and the peace has been taken away. And the warfare and fighting continues. The fighting over the flocks continue, not just in Jerusalem or or, excuse me, not in just Samaria or the House of Israel, the Worldwide Church of God, but the fighting and the competition continues in the splits. And you don't find rest there either, do you? Now, I hope that you can find some rest here, but on the other hand, we will not let you rest because I think that is what is going and ultimately to save us, is that if we do not sit back and rest on our oars, but that we move forward. So we can continually try to stir ourselves up and stir you up, and hopefully God will give us at least a modicum of rest, and perhaps we won't have to flee from this one too. But don't sit here and think you're okay just because you're here. You will be judged okay by God if your heart and intent and mind and attitude is correct. 
just as I will. Verse 11. If a man walking in the Spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be a prophet of this people. What is wine and strong drink? The good things. Eat, drink, and be merry. We're spiritually okay. As long as you're here, you're fine. That is a false prophecy. That is not what God wants preached. He's talking about a sinful, despondent, lackadaisical, rebellious people here. And he says, the kind of prophets those people want are wine and strong drink. Let's have a party. But that is not what God wants to be preached. It reminds me of the Lord delays his coming. Let's eat and drink with the drunken. Verse 12, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of you. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. When we get to Haggai, we'll see exactly how that is going to happen. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. The breaker, the destroyer, the Assyrian, the spiritual Assyrian, and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it, and their king shall pass before them, and the Lord on the head of them. So God is going to deliver. He's going to put us together. And as the breaker comes into the land, even then God is going to begin to lead us, to head us, to give us leadership, to take us out. So that is the encouraging part. If we will do our part, God is going to do His. Verse uh, Chapter 3 now. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and you princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to face judgment? So he addresses the leadership here again. My Bible says no judgment, but face or experience judgment is the force of the words. Who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. Let me turn back to Romans 16. See if that was not what the problem was even in the early New Testament church. Romans, Romans 16, verse 17. Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offense contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. That's what's happening to the church today. Fancy arguments about a lot of doctrines that we were taught very simply. We were converted by reading little tiny booklets. Why were you born? The proof of the Bible. Uh, all about water baptism. Some of those, and maybe I've said this before. Uh, I'm getting senile. I'm sorry if I have. But they only had a very few scriptures in them. Maybe four, five, six, eight scriptures. Very simply put, very simply written, and yet our, our minds opened, our hearts responded fast. But then we get all these involved arguments 
to try to prove false doctrine. Whereas when God opens your mind, he just simply opens it and it becomes so very, very clear. But we're being chopped up and put in a soup bowl. Verse 4, Then shall they cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. So God says, I'm turning my head against the leadership because of what they've done to my people. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that fight with their teeth and cry peace. Everything's okay. We'll be unified. Everything's great. We'll go preach the gospel somewhere. And he that puts not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. So God says they say peace, they say safety, they say everything is going to be okay. But God says, I'm not putting those words in their mouths. And they're actually fighting against God in so doing. Verse 6, Therefore, night shall be to you that you shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark to you that you shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. They don't even understand what is going on for the most part. Even in those who came out of worldwide, much less those that are still in. The ministry, God says, overall does not have a concept of what's happening. Then shall the seers be ashamed and the diviners confounded. <laughs> Yea, that shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer of God. God just simply doesn't answer. Things just sort of fall flat. And that's the way it is today. But notice verse 8. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. So Micah is saying, even though the ministry is dark, he had a message from God, and he said, this is the message from God. It's not all dark out there, Micah says. If we will listen to his words. <coughs> and what are the words of God then, as Micah stated them? To have judgment and might, and to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. That is the message. Before the destroyer comes into our land, <coughs> that is the message when we see the flock being devoured by the false ministry. That is the message just before the day of the Lord. That is the message that Micah and the other true prophets of God bring to us. So if we are to preach anything, it is to be the message of Micah. It is to be the message of Isaiah. It is not a smooth and easy thing. And God is making that abundantly clear right here. Says the rest don't have it. But I do. So let's listen up to what God has to say through the prophet Micah. Hear this. I pray you. I beg you. I beseech you. I ask you. That's what pray is. You heads of the house of Jacob and the princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. We sort of divided the people that came in here today into this living room and uh, everyone that didn't have on a gold chain and a gold ring and a fancy robe we put out in the other room. No, we didn't. 
have to be very careful and judging and teaching and interacting with one another. Remember the sermon I gave the day before Pentecost about Matthew 18 and offending the little one and the millstone and so on and so forth. That is what Micah is talking about here. Among the leadership and certainly interpersonally between individuals and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So they preach pray and pay, pay, pay and pray and pay, pay, pay. And they filled it up with a sweat and blood and broken bodies and neglect of the sheep. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. So the bottom line is not righteousness and holiness, but money. I know that's a surprise to all of you, but there it is in black and white. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say... Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. We're doing the work of God here. This can't go wrong. This isn't bad. So they'll lean on God's name. They'll give God lip service. But at the same time, bite and devour and take money and be hirelings. And preach what the people want to hear. So that the people will keep paying and perhaps pray emphasis on the pay. When the emphasis is money, everything is upside down. Therefore, all right, here's the judgment. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. He wants the high places knocked out, the places of idol worship. So this is already happening in the church. We're in the middle of it. We're being knocked flat and plowed as a plowed ground and just become heaps of rocks and stones. Now let's get into chapter 4. We have, a, we have about 15 minutes left. Probably won't get through all of this, but we'll at least get into it and establish some thoughts. But in the last days... All right, see also again the setting here. It's not millennial. What he's talking about here is not necessarily millennial. In the last days, and the days just prior to the establishment of the kingdom of God, just before the day of the Lord, or including it perhaps, not after, but in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. So out of this destruction that we've been talking about, of the church, apply it first to the church, later to the physical nation, but it applies to you and me now. Out of this destruction of the church that God is sending, and the destruction of the leadership, he is going to raise up a latter temple. And we're not going to get into that in detail right now, because that comes later in the story, and I don't want to, to move ahead of what God has for us today, as opposed to what comes a few books later on. But it will all tie together, I promise you, because that's the way God has written it. He is going to reestablish proper government. He is going to reestablish proper leadership. 
And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths for the law. That which some think now is done away, the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now he's not talking about the Middle East here because the destruction of the day of the Lord has not even occurred. And Israel, I mean, Jerusalem is still Sodom and Egypt at this point. Read Revelation 11. Jerusalem has been removed from Jerusalem. As far as I know, God has not called one person out of the nation of Israel in this end time. And if he has called any, it's only been one or two or three. I don't know of any personally. Maybe there are some that I don't know about. But he has certainly done no great work in what he terms Sodom and Egypt. So the law goes forth from where? It goes forth from God's church. From God's true church. And it will be reestablished. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off until they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation or translate that people. People shall not lift up a sword against people neither shall they learn war anymore. Now let's look upon this spiritually. Our minds, because of sermons at the feast for the last 30, 40, 50 years, automatically say, that millennium. But on a spiritual level with us today, that is not millennium. We have people today in God's church warring and fighting against one another. Churches, different organizations, putting others down, lifting themselves up in vanity and exaltation instead of abasing themselves. I would much rather say of the church of great God, these are the basis of the people in God's church. These are those who need help. These are those who are willing to humble themselves before God. These are the ones who are willing to say, I'm not Philadelphian, I'm Laodicea, and I need to do something about it. I'm Ephesian, I've left my first love, I need to do something about it. I'm not mighty and exalted, and I don't have it made because I'm in this organization, because we do not. Whence come wars and fightings among us, as James put it? Is it not of our own lust, our own pride, our own vanity, our own ego? That's what he explains. He says, God says, in the book of Haggai, when he puts the latter temple back together, and that's what he's beginning to introduce here spiritually in Micah 2, or in Micah 4, excuse me. In this place will I bring peace. Now, the former temple is being demolished in front of our very eyes, and we have experienced and suffered part of that demolition. If we are to be candidates for the latter temple, we must learn the way of peace. For if we do not learn the way of peace, we will not be in the latter temple. I will refer you to an article which is today unavailable to you, but come July, it will be, and that is the personal that John Reitenbaugh has just written for the forerunner on peace. 
And he told me in that, it, in studying the subject, it has broadened his understanding by a great deal of what is required. It's not just someone who mediates between two warring parties to make peace between them, but those who live a life of peace. Of course, he expands that notion a great deal, I'm sure, and I don't want to steal, in that sense, the thunder from it, but I want you to point you to it because I feel that it ties in very definitely with Micah 4 and verse 3. What does beating your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks mean? That means that you change the implements, the weapons, the, the barbs, the hurts, the put-downs of your mind. That which spears, that which goads, that which slices other people. Change it to that which is peaceable. So that you live a peaceable life. We are told to live at peace with all men as much as is within you. But when he puts together the latter temple in the last days, when he begins to reestablish proper government, proper love, proper relationships within his church, only those who are willing to change the implements of their mind to those of peace are going to be included. Because he states unequivocally, I will bring peace in that place. And if we are not willing to do whatever is necessary to live at peace, we cannot be there. The leaders have to quit fighting over the sheep. The leaders have to quit fighting for ascendancy. To think that they are those chosen of God to preach the gospel or whatever else their deal might be but to simply submit and take care of God's people in the way that God wants it done. How can God use someone to preach the gospel powerfully around the world if they're constantly putting down other organizations and saying, I'm a Philadelphian, you're a Laodicean? How can God use that attitude? He says, those who seek to exalt themselves shall be abased. And those who abase themselves shall be exalted. So if you and I want to be used of God to help his people, we have to abase ourselves. We don't have to win the battle of wits. We don't have to win the battles for power. We don't have to win in our relationships with others. We have to uh, submit ourselves esteeming others better than ourselves. That's the way Jesus Christ did it. He abased himself and died for you and me. Are we willing to do that for each other? If we are, then we will be included because we will be doing what he tells us here in chapter in verse 3 of chapter 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. What does he tell us in the book of Haggai? Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, over and over and over again. But work to build a proper temple. And I believe that through scattered through all the groups of God's churches today, there are stones who are having the untempered mortar being knocked off them. They are being recut and reshaped and repolished. 
so that when God assembles that latter temple, those stones will go together and fit. And it will be done in peace. Remember when he assembled the pieces and parts for the tabernacle and how they were the stones were hewn away from the site and then when they came together there was not the noise of a hammer, not the noise of a tool, but everything fit. So God is working on you and me, chipping away at us, chipping away the untempered parts and getting us ready to put us into that temple. And it's not going to be done with fighting and war between ministers saying, I ought to be the head of this latter temple. It will simply be done by those who humble themselves and abase themselves and are willing to be worked with. Every man will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Well, what do you mean by that spiritually? Every man will take care of his own things. He won't be great. He won't be over corporations or big churches. But every man will take care of that which God gives him. He will be thankful for it and not try to move beyond that. And God will protect and bless that kind of attitude. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. He does not use Lord of hosts very frequently, nor does he do it, um, let's say, carelessly. The book of Haggai uses Lord of hosts, I don't remember now, I think it was 17 times, something like that, over and over and over in two short chapters. Because he says, I am God and I have the power to do this and I will do this. And you can be part of it if you will do what he's telling us right here. Now this is the message that Micah sent. Remember now, it said right up here, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and judgment and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Then he lifts the sins of the leaders, and he says, But in the last days, if you will come to have the attitude right here, then God will include you. For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So the final restitution of the ways of God begins where? It begins with the bride of Christ, the church. And once he reestablishes the latter temple, it will never again be knocked down. Once he gets us, the remnant, if we're included, together, puts us together as a church, that will then spread, as the millennium begins, to all the world. And all people then will accept it. But we must get the concept in mind that it has to start with you and me. Because we are to be the kings and priests in the world tomorrow with Christ ruling as queen under our king. And if it doesn't start with the church of God, as I think Paul put it, there's no place for it to start. There's no, nothing else on this earth that could even begin to be what God wants. So it must begin with the house of God first and then spread to the whole earth. So what he's talking here, yes, blends right on into the millennium. But it has to start with you and me so that he can use us to help bring this in. Now the United States, the United States, the United Nations has as one of their mottos, I think, out in front of the United Nations building in New York. 
they will beat their plowshares into, I mean, their spears into pruning hooks and their swords into plowshares. I probably got it backward, but that's just me. I'm not there yet. Now, are they going to accomplish it? I don't think so. Back to the business, they may come around and take everyone's guns away and say, now beat these into plowshares. Now you peasants all get out there and plow because we're going to sit in our fine offices and make sure you do. That's the way the beast handles the people. But God is not going to do it that way. God is going to get every man a vine and a fig tree. He's going to give him his responsibilities and his family to take care of. And we will manage them properly. Well, that is down to time to quit within a minute. So rather than going on, let's read one more verse. In that day, says the Lord, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. First the church, later on the physical nations after they come out of the great physical tribulation. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So beginning in the days just before the day of the Lord, in the last days, he's going to begin this restoration in his church, and it is going to carry through to the whole world. We have that to look forward to if we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. We can be a part of bringing peace to this world. So he says, repent and live in peace. Do the things that promote and encourage and build peace. And you can be a part of what I am going to do, God says. Well, that's a good place for us to start, and we'll pick it up there next time. End of transmission.